The Theonauts, episode 19. The one where we take the gloves off. The Theonauts podcast. Christian news from around the globe. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. Explore the vast reaches of God's Word. Welcome, Theo Crusaders. Hey, guys. Theo Crusaders. That's a good one for our episode. (laughs) Wow. How's everything going? Ah, it's going pretty good for me. How about you, David? I'm good. Awesome. Well, I'm David Gaddy. I'm Jeremiah Orr. Together we are the Theo Nuts. All right. How has your week been, man? Crazy? (laughs) Yeah. It's, uh, if you can't tell by my voice, I'm about like half past dead. So it's been a good week, a long week. I think I'm just staying up nights. I don't know why. I'm just, you know, and, you know, sitting in my man den, uh, man cave, furiously writing and reading and, and, uh, not going to bed. So it's been a good week. How about you, David? Oh, it's been busy, man. So yeah, really crazy. So, oh, one thing that, uh, that we've been doing. Let's see, we watched a movie on Tuesday night. We did. In preparation for our uh, guest appearance yeah. on Finding Christ in Cinema. I cannot wait for that. Oh. So this is, uh, by the time you guys are hearing this, <laughs> you can probably just about go over and go right hear over this. and listen to this. <laughs> because we're going to be right. uh, recording our, our guest spot on Finding Christ in Cinema, we're going to be talking about uh, the Dead Poet Society. Yes, yes. Good old Robin Williams flick, man. I'll tell you, it's it's the best Robin Williams flick, in my opinion. Me too. It's... I don't know. I think think it's just really, really good. Yeah. And there's some good Christian themes in it that we're going to address. Yeah. So I'm excited about that and the connection with... Uh, finding Christ in cinema, it's going to be wonderful. It's yeah, I'm anxious to, to uh, hear what those guys have to say about it. You know, Me there too. are some uh, uh, things in there that are very classical literature type of things. And yeah. I'm wondering, you know, with Brendan's background and everything, I think there's going to be some interesting things to, to definitely, talk about. Definitely, definitely. So. so look forward to seeing that. Yeah, yeah. so jump on over there to uh, Finding Christ, or Finding, no, is it... <laughs> Guys, I don't even know your your website. <laughs> <laughs> FCC.gctnetwork.com. That's right. That's it. And uh, <laughs> I always listen to it on the Stitcher app because that's all I have right. pretty much on my Android. Yeah, if you're not subscribed to them, uh, yeah, on your on your podcast listener or whatever player, then uh, make sure you get over there and subscribe to those guys. Yeah, that's that's a really cool podcast. It is definitely. Oh man, I'm ready for school to start, David. Last night I walked into my man cave at 11 o'clock and there were three boys watching The Hobbit. <laughs> <laughs> so your house is like the... Um... Oh, it's Grand Central Station when summer hits. It's hilarious. <laughs> I have kids in there 
all times of the day, and that's the reason I even made a man cave so my wife would, you know, have so you can have a place for them to go. That's right. So they get banished to the man cave when we go. (laughs) It's hilarious. Oh my goodness. But yeah, I'll have anywhere from you know two to six kids at my house at any time of the day. I during you know during summer there's nothing for them to do. So you know it's it's better than them roaming the streets and getting in trouble. Well, yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm so ready for school to start next week, baby. I'm waiting for it. So awesome. (laughs) That's what's been going on with me. All right. And now, the news. There's a book that's come out that I'm really excited about reading, and uh, I I can't wait to uh, check it out. It's uh, done by Barnabas Piper. He's the son of John Piper. John Piper wrote the the famous book, Desiring God. He's a, a pastor among pastors. He pastored, well, actually he's retired now, Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, or St. Paul, Minnesota, one of the two twin cities, um, for years upon years. And Barnabas grew up as his son, and uh, uh, being a PK came with some certain, you know, stress and and, and other things. And so um, I was on Christianity Today, and I read a uh, a um, an interview that that Ed Stetzer did with uh, Barnabas and I really man it just spoke to me for me being a PK I thought it was pretty cool so y'all should go out and check out the book the book is called uh, The Pastor's Kid and it's supposed to be uh, really good Um, when when he was asked about being a pastor's kid he was asked about the worst part and the best part it was so true Uh, the worst part of course was the fact that you had to be perfect in every way growing up as a PK. And I remember this, man. I would have to, you know, make sure that uh, that my hair was in the right place and the way I acted was, you know, sweetly to the old ladies. And I couldn't run around like the rest of the kids. If I did, the judgment came upon not only me, and I would hear this from my dad, but from my dad also. And so, you know, we had that, that dynamic. But the best part was growing up, we it was kind of like a family thing. The church was... A family to us more than it is, I imagine, to others because you know we were just embraced by. Even it. though it's supposed to be a family, exactly for all of us. It, it was. It ended up being really a family uh, for us. And he talks about um, growing up in John Piper's home. And for those of you who don't know John Piper, uh, he was. He's just on a different level. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He's just a. All he does day and night is study scripture. That was his thing, you know. And so growing up as his kid, uh, they asked, you know, was it, were there expectations that, you know, you didn't meet or exceed? And, and he said, no, really, actually, his dad strived to be an amazing pastor. And so um, I'm really excited about reading the book, and uh, I think y'all should go out and check it out too. What's it called? Um, it's called The Pastor's Kid, and uh, it's The Life of Barnabas Piper. Um, uh, I uh, wanted to read this little blurb from him. This is the question. It says, you can't uh, talk about PK without the P. 
uh, or pastor's kid without the P. And we hear a lot of pastors were too into Jesus or the church to be a good parent. How was your experience? And this is what Barnabas says. I would love to describe it that way. Or I would not describe it that way. My dad deeply loves us, me, my four siblings, and my mom. I've never felt he was absent. Even now as an older man, he could be mailing in the rest of his days. He continually seeks to be better as a dad and a grandfather. What made it difficult for me was the intensity with which my dad connected to God and how he pursued him. My dad is the most single-minded, driven, disciplined man I have ever known, and the kind of intensity and focus can have an effect of uh, distancing someone from those who are more, well, normal. (laughs) (laughs) He said, it's not because he is distant in the lackadaisical or unaware way, but because he is on a different plane of focus, fire, and faith. I don't know how to get there, and he isn't really able to come to where I live either. And that was something that I really noticed growing up also. You know, it was almost like a dad's on a different plane. He's, you know, he's different. He's not normal like right. every other dad, you know. He's not the guy that has his hands in his pants drinking the beer at the end of the day kind of dad. And so it was different, you know. But uh, but it was also awesome. So just an encouragement for all the PKs out there. If anybody's listening who's, cool. who grew up in a pastor's home, uh, get the book, check it out. It's going to be awesome. Um, and then I read an article which really shocked me. Um Growing up in the church, I would hear these facts, quote-unquote, I'm using air quotes, you can't see that, but I'm doing it, (laughs) on marriage, Um, especially in marriage seminars and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the facts I would always hear is marriage, uh, the the divorce rate is 50% in America, and it's even... Uh, almost higher in the church, right? I've heard those those facts. Yes, also. Um, <laughs> all my life, and and uh, and uh, you know, it, it's almost like devastating. You, you think you sit in a class or sit in a room, and you look look to your left at a marriage, and look to a right at a marriage. One out of two of you is gonna fail, right? <laughs> That's the idea, right? And uh, but they've. They've done a new study, actually. Um, this time next year, half of you won't be married. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, uh, Sean T. Fielden is writing a book on marriage. <laughs> I, I wrote a book. <laughs> We're all about books this morning. She's writing a book about marriage, and she went back and redid the studies, or just took a different focus on the studies, uh, one with the Barna group, uh, some different, and it's really interesting what she, uh, what she pulled out, um, is surprising. And I'll read this, this blurb. Uh, the myth has persisted in part, uh, no, Okay, I'll go up a little bit. The divorce rate for society as a whole, the percentage of marriages that have ended in divorce at any one point in time, has never hit 50%. Mm -hmm. There are some subgroups that have higher divorce rates, but the overall average has never gotten close. The myth has persisted in part because leading researchers continue to project project that's in the future 40 to 50 percent of marriages will end in divorce those projections projections started with no fault divorce in the 1970s when divorce rate divorce rate skyrocketed um the researchers of the day projected that if the trend continued we would hit 50 percent someday 
But very quickly, around 1980, the divorce rate peaked, and according to the available data, it has declined dramatically since then. Really? Yes. Wow. Yeah, isn't that shocking? <laughs> and here I was thinking, divorce, you know, traditional marriage is doomed in America. <laughs> that's, you know, and uh, you know, that's the projection. Yeah, my, my perception has been that it's just continually gotten worse and worse and worse. And right. Worse. And, and while it may have, in fact, that's still the projection. They say, you know, it's going to be 50%. Um, the reality is... Uh, what are the so so what are the real overall divorce rates? I believe the best measure comes from a 2009 study from the Census Bureau, which shows that 71 percent of once married women and 81 percent of men are still married to their first spouse. Plus, the 29 percent who aren't still married includes those who have been widowed. Based on the rates of widowhood and other factors, we can estimate that somewhere around 20 to 25% of first marriages have been in divorce. 20 to 25% versus 50%. Isn't that shocking? I mean, that blows me away. But but part of this is just these numbers yeah. i mean anytime you do these these type of numbers they're they're always funny numbers anyway that's right because it all depends on the control group that's being exactly uh asked or uh-huh. examined and it also determines what kind of math are you playing into it just like you were just saying right you've got this how they're figuring this out is taking uh how many people have been married for so long and then they're they're taking the leftovers and right. figuring out what percent that is. It's not like, it's not like just apples to apples. Right. It's not like just walking down the street and, and, and counting and counting how many people have. You can't do that. Right. And that's the problem. So, you know, exactly funny numbers. So who knows if these statistics are even right. Right. But the reality but see, is. See, I'm curious to know is how she's compiling. Right. Like, is she taking in more than one control group in in mind because I think that's that's part of what uh, drives a lot of these statistics that you see right. in the media and all kinds of stuff is they go to a certain demographic, right? And, uh-huh. I mean, I've never been stopped on the street and asked some of these questions that you know so many people pulled, blah 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 blah. Right. And uh, so I just wonder. You know, it's it's really interesting. So I, I you know, go read this article, but uh, they say that in her article she continues to say that thirty five percent of second marriages end in divorce, mm-hmm. which they used to project that 60% of second marriages end in for divorce. And then marriage in the church um, has a 25 to 50% lower rate. Wow. <laughs> so instead of, you know, what they were... So, you know, and that one to me, I always heard, you know, couples in the church have, you know, a little less. And I'm thinking, you know, if their faith is grounded on Christ to begin with, which I believe Christ needs to be at the center of every marriage in order to make it a good marriage. Well, and and also what qualifies as a Christian in one of these polls? Right. Do they just simply ask, "Are you Christian? Are you going but, to church?" Yeah, you, I mean, what's yeah. you know, because the level of devotion is probably not coming into play at all. Right. Right. But you know, the the thing is, I don't know if this is a good or bad thing. I mean, it might be a good thing from the aspect of of bringing light to uh, to a fallacy, right? Misnomers that we, but believe. the fallacy or misnomer still has a positive impact, right, on you whenever you're at these marriage councils. Absolutely, because the whole point is to strengthen marriage and make marriage last, 
And if you know these numbers are serving the purpose of making you open your eyes and think about, huh. you know, so so uh, you know this would be a good <laughs> poll for us. What call in? Write us. What <laughs> yes. do you think about the divorce rate in America? Let us uh, let us know what you think. Is it higher? Is it lower? What do you think? Yeah, send us an email noticing? saying your age, how long you've been married, <laughs> we'll and whether or not you're a devout Christian. <laughs> yes. <laughs> whether or not you really love your wife. Yes. And uh, <laughs> if you've ever committed adultery. <laughs> <laughs> And P.O. Then, Box 705. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. And then we'll put that together, and then we'll have the real truth That's on the right. show. And we won't totally broadcast your real name, <laughs> I promise. <laughs> Anyways, I have one more, uh, uh, um, just a little blurb. The Michael Brown case, uh, what's going on uh, in St. Louis, well, Ferguson, Um <clears throat> With the whole riot, I mean, there was more riots last night. Yeah, it's been going police. crazy. It is. It has been, and I'm surprised that it's lasted as long as it has. Usually, these things are just small uprisings and go away. I think this one's lasting longer than the Rodney King beating. Mm. I'm pretty sure it is, and which yeah. is shocking to me. You know what I mean? Because that was such a big uprising, and I well, think it was kind of. It was one of. Yeah, it was just that was because the time of the media yeah. that was. Um, of course, you know, you've had riots and stuff before then, but this was a time, the Rodney King thing was at a time whenever media was in the air and everywhere. Right. And For the first time they filmed r- it. And right. It. And so I think it made a bigger impact because sure. of that. Yeah. And, uh, well, I guess last night uh, around 4 a.m., police officers in St. Louis shot a black another black man and killed him. Um, Stop shooting black people. Yeah, seriously. Come on. No. <laughs> but what happened was this guy... Stole from a store mm-hmm. um, and then walked around with a knife threatening to kill people. And so they pulled up and he's holding the knife and they actually have, I watched the video footage of it last night. Mm-hmm. He's holding the knife at his side. The police originally say he's holding it in, a, in an upward way. like, And then he's walking towards the police and the police are saying, put the knife down, sir. Put the knife down, sir. And he's not obeying it. And what he's saying is, kill me. Kill me now. Just kill me. Right. Just kill me. And I mean, they got about 10 feet away from the police officer and he just killed him. Because, I mean, there's what do you do there in that situation? Right. Do you? So, anyways, there's a big uprising. It's I don't I don't know if it's going to go any uh, go away anytime soon. You know what we need? We need more black cops. Amen. I thought about that last night. <laughs> because, you know, then that could take away some of this yeah. uh, stuff. Because it would be a tough to be a cop. Yeah. I mean, really stop and think about it. You're in a situation where you're trying to save lives, protect people and all this. And you have to start thinking about, wait a minute. Is this going to be racially? Uh, is this going to turn into a racial thing because this guy's of a minority race or whatever? I mean, it would just make it really hard right. if you're legit. I'm not, not talking about you know. Sure, I'm not saying that there's not police that are racially um, discriminatory. You know, discriminatory, yeah. but I'm just saying from from everyone else's perspective. This would be hard yeah. to do your job because right. you're trying to protect the public, and sometimes you have to to use force. Right. Well, and uh, one of the things I've been watching, I watched, um, oh, what's that idiot guy? I forget his name, but I'm not a big fan of him. Oh, that guy. <laughs> yeah, that guy. Uh, he's he's one of these political. Uh, he's a comedian. 
uh, slash analyst, and he makes all these. He's an atheist, and he's just really mean about oh, it. Um, Is it Bill Maher? Bill Maher, yeah. Yeah, Bill Maher does this thing. Uh, he flashed an image, Manny Griffith, and uh, 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 what's his sidekick, Barney? Yeah, five, <laughs> Barney five. Yeah, and uh, the picture of them, you know, in their just normal suits, and then the, the next image he flashes is of uh, militarized police. This is our picture today of police versus this is our picture of yesteryear. And I'm like, no, that's not quite true. But whatever. It's <laughs> like saying, leave it to Beaver is what the American family looked like right. in the 50s. Exactly. Yeah. So I could take that and I could go against the gay and lesbian agenda on the other side, right? right. Yeah. But anyways, they're taking this now to the, to the extent of going... Uh, we need to demilitarize the police. The police are too militarized. They're getting oh. all these surplus uh, stuff back from yeah. the Iraq War and Afghanistan. Let, let's make let's make sure that the that the criminals have all the weapons. Exactly, and not the police, especially in inner cities. <laughs> are you kidding me? You know, it's just nuts. But, anyways, the the cool thing that something that's neat that's coming out of this are the religious uh, leaders in Ferguson mm-hmm. are really stepping up and being mediators. Right. Uh, I read a story about uh, a, a young pastor who um, heard the rioters down the street and knew they were heading towards the police station to confront the police when it first started. And so he went out and he stopped him. He said, no, let's, let's talk to them and I'll go in and I'll get a couple police officers, and we'll come. I'll bring them out, and you can talk to them about what went on. And he stopped a, a potentially devastating situation right there. And then uh, clergy have been uh, the the headline is uh, how the relig- how the righteous religious leaders in Ferguson are giving uh, giving us hope. Right. And basically, they're just stepping in and being mediators uh, and loving both sides. Uh, giving food and water to the protesters, making sure their needs are taken care of, trying to uh, stop the violence. Yeah, that's and I, good. I think that's an awesome thing. I, I think that's a great picture of what Christians should do in this situation. I don't know if we need to necessarily take sides rise up. I think we need to take a stand for justice. But at the same time, more than anything, we need to love yeah. and, uh, and be mediators. Uh, go betweens. That's a beautiful Sounds thing. Good. So that's what I got in the news. Awesome. <clears throat> Traveling through time. Woo! Where are we at now? We are in the Middle Ages. <laughs> Bring out your dead, right? <laughs> well, no, we've tra- we've moved a little past that. Okay. So uh, technically, the Dark Ages do is part of the Middle Ages, right? Yeah. But uh, the Middle Ages actually run um, from about 700 AD to about 1500. Right. So I'm gonna tr- we'll try to get to. 1500 today. 1500. That's our goal. We're going to start. We ended at the end of the millennium. Right. So we're talking about the year 1000 on. Right. So um, the church has been established by this point pretty much. Yes. And Uh, we've talked about the division in the church. We've talked about how uh, it has deteriorated from from its Original original mindset. The Bible had been locked up. Right. Uh, in Latin, and so it was inaccessible to the regular the common, person. common person. Right. Exactly. And, uh, you know, once again, 
if there were any pockets of Christians doing something other than this, it's completely undocumented. I, I do not believe that's the case. I believe this was a truly a dark error in Christian history. And right. But, like we said before, God was using this to uh, empower some reform right. that, we, that we'll see come out of it. One thing that I had uh, personal feedback whenever I was talking with someone about our, our history it, it, our history shows, they were asking me, well, when did the English language come about? Hmm. So, uh, and we didn't really touch on that a whole lot because, you know, our, our Christian history starts in Rome, pretty much. No, it starts in Jerusalem, but then it goes more into Rome, Byzantine. Yeah. Okay. Um, and... Then all of a sudden we kind of shift into Europe, right? And and Christian history really begins to happen more in Europe, Europe than anywhere right. else. And we talked about how that really got started in the late part of the first millennium when Saint Augustine went to right. England and began to convert the Anglo-Saxons. Yeah. So, real quick runaround on where the English language, how it's developed. Um, Britain at that time, of course, this is stepping back a little bit, but at the time uh, that St. Augustine went there, Britain was the the area that we call England now, Mm -hmm. was at that time populated, uh, Roman Britain was populated by Germanic. Germanic tribes. Tribes. And and, uh, one of these was what we call the Anglo-Saxons. Right. And there were several types of Saxons. But the Anglo-Saxons is, are, are the ones that fit into, that's where the word English, English. came from, is Angle, Ang, uh, the Anglos. Yeah. And so um, <clears throat> there's this big all-out war with those guys over there, right? right. And so um, what ends up happening is... This, Game of Thrones all over again. The, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Saxons are defeated. Yes. And uh, it's just like what... King Arthur, <laughs> defeater of the Saxons, <laughs> sovereign of all England. So, oh, I didn't vote for you. <laughs> so so uh, the the Saxons were defeated, and but their language was primarily what was being used. Okay, right. so out of the Saxony languages, West Saxon really became the dominant language of that land. And West Saxon is you might if you if you've studied any literature in high school you may have read the poem Beowulf. Right. Okay. Beowulf was written in Western Saxon. That's right. And um, and good luck reading it in its original. <laughs> oh yes, it's. I had to do that in college. That was really. Fun. Oh, uh, and J.R.R. Tolkien has a translation of that really? that has just been republished. They, oh, they just published check that it. out. So, I think Michael's got a copy of it. Oh. <laughs> So, but yeah, it's really cool. Um, so anyway, then uh, the language uh, began to morph over time mm-hmm. as England became more of a of a sovereign country, and uh, Middle English is about the time frame that we're talking today. Right, we're we talking about the Middle Ages. Middle English was the language being used. Uh, if you want a sample of that, Chaucer. Yeah, Canterbury Tales, that sort of thing. All that's written in Middle, Middle English. English. Yeah. And then by the time we get through the Middle Ages, we come into what's called Modern English. Right. Modern English is not real modern anymore. 
<laughs> Shakespeare, uh, the King James translation of the Bible, that is modern, modern English. And the reason why it's called that is because the King James translation was actually a large part of solidifying the grammar, the spelling. That's right. All that sort of thing. Is, it was used uh, as a grammar book, actually. You know, we right, used it right. to show this is, this is proper <clears throat> so, English. So that's where the English language happens and, and, and it's right. and it's happening during this time frame in which we're talking. Um, so a couple of things to catch us up to what's going on up to this point. You had uh, the Pope at Byzantium, uh, Constantinople, and you have the Pope at Rome. Remember, mm-hmm. they basically said, nope. Uh, Leo said, I'm the greatest. <laughs> <laughs> I am Pope Leo the first. <laughs> I am Leo the Great. That's right. And um, so he basically put himself ahead of the Pope at Constantinople, right. which didn't do anything except for continue to create the separation. Okay, the first thing that we really have here in the in the 1000s is 1054. Yes. We have what's called the Great Schism. <laughs> the East and the West <laughs> split. <laughs> okay, so Leo dies. Right. And um, there is a legislation, of, uh, a papal legislation that gets together in Rome. They travel to Constantinople to deny the current sitting patriarch. <laughs> I will deny you to your face. <laughs> yes. It's not good enough to send a letter. That's right. We got to go there and tell you that you are not denied. <laughs> yeah. So this, uh, this, when this happens, it creates a official break. Right. Okay. So this is where the schism really begins between Eastern and Western Orthodoxy. Right. And we'll see that uh, through the course of this next four or 500 years, uh, that schism remains. That's right. There's, they're constantly trying to make amends here and there, but it never really happens. Yeah, and we'll we don't unite, and uh, you know, and they they almost grow up separate lives. It's almost a it's it's a schism, you know. Yeah, so. yeah, and and yeah, it actually becomes quite um, yeah different. But anyway, another thing that happened right up to the that we talked about in the previous episodes was Muhammad. And and yes. this whole movement of Islam right. coming through the Holy Lands, okay, in about uh, six seven hundred that time frame, the Muslims took over right. uh, the Holy Lands pretty much. However, um, it was kind of cordial with the Christians. They were mainly opposed to the Jewish yeah. people. We just didn't like the Jews too much. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So, <laughs> Muslims with a British accent. <laughs> Sorry, I don't do a Muslim accent. I don't know what to do there. <laughs> well, we don't like the Jews. There you go. Wow, that was awesome. So, oh, so anyway, the, the but they were cordial with the Christians. Uh, they had they they saw Jesus as a good prophet, and right. so uh, they they were basically saying, you know what, we're 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 taking care of the Holy Land. Yeah. Uh, but you, you Christians, if you want a pilgrimage over to Jerusalem, <laughs> feel, feel free. Feel free. Yeah. We're good with that. Yeah. And so that's where it was kind of been left. Right. Until 1071. Oh. We have now. This is the Turks. This is the this group of Muslims that are in Jerusalem in Holy Land are the Turks, uh, and it is a faction of Sunni right. uh, Islam, 
and uh, a guy takes control by the name of Seljuk. Seljuk says, no more Christians. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> we don't want you here. <laughs> Stay out. Right. <laughs> okay. That didn't go over well. By this time, we've got uh, most of, we've got a, a, a lot of European Christians. Mm-hmm. The European nations are growing. England, France, Spain, all these countries have very strong, dominant Christian um, belief systems. Right. There's the there's <clears throat> all these uh, archbishops in each area. It's a very strong. Uh, the, the the military there in in those countries is right. developing and becoming very strong. And you've got to remember, this wasn't just a religion to them. This was their government as well. You know, when you say you're a Christian, you unite. It's almost like a governmental thing. And so they had militaries. They had Christian mm. armies, okay? Yes, that, and and that's a good point because as these nations were growing, remember they were growing with the papacy right. and the the bishops of... They were uniting the, under Rome. The church, right. right. So uh, there was a lot of, of influence, governmental influence that the church had exactly, in all this. Yeah. So... Whenever the Turks say, you can't come into the Holy Land, they go, hide and watch. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, we can. Okay, we so. We take them. Oh, no, they didn't. <laughs> it's good. It's good. So, so oh, 10, 1095. The Council of Claremont. Yes, this is the first crusade. That's right. So um, so they're, they're like, okay, let's go down there. <laughs> and take care of business. That's right. Pope Urban II proclaims crusade. And so they go, they unite with armies, and they go down and they take care of business. What do they do? Well, this is a four-year crusade. Yes. Uh, and they actually, uh, there's a lot of confusions about these crusades. Um, it's really simple. The, the point of the crusade was to take the Holy land from the, is from the Muslims. Right. That was the point. Now that being said, there were things that happened in these crusades that weren't sanctioned. Right. Um, one of which is antisemitism. Mm-hmm. Antisemitism was really big in the Catholic church, especially in this time frame. Well, they really believed and of course they didn't have the Bible to back them up. So they really believed that the Jews were responsible for killing Jesus. Yes, as if that was a bad thing for right, us. Right, exactly. <laughs> killing Jesus is horrible, right? It only redeemed us of our he sins. killed our Savior. <laughs> right. And, and so, and so, but anyway, so they, um, so there's, there's a huge Jewish massacre that occurs throughout these crusades. Yeah. And um, it, it, in fact, many historians refer to it as the first Holocaust. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's really kind of sad that um, mm. that all of this was done in the name of Jesus. Yeah. Because there's no way he would have sanctioned right this type of thing. I mean, at all. I mean, right. this is a total departure from Christian love. No, I and, didn't. You know, it's and, disgusting at that at that point. It, it just gets to be, and this is not Christianity. Yeah, this is evil. And this is Satan in charge of the Christian Church, right? <laughs> so there is a success that happens. Ten ninety nine, the First Crusade is successful. They do take back Jerusalem, right? Uh, however, um, 
it doesn't last very long. Nope. Now, here's an interesting that happens in 1119. Uh, they establish an order of knights to protect the mm. temple. The Knights Templar. The Knights Templar. You may have heard that before. <laughs> Those are the ones that have the Holy Grail. <laughs> and they live forever in a cave. I've seen this. Indiana, Indiana Jones, Jones comes, movie? Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so you have these Knights Templar. Right. That This is their establishment. This is where they began. And this is a really weird thing, the, the, the way this Knights Templar thing happened. Because, okay, here's what they were. They were a group of Christian warriors. Yeah, warrior monks. Yes, they wore white with a red cross on them. And their whole job, this is why they were formed, they were there to protect pilgrims. Because even though Jerusalem was captured... The problem was Christian pilgrims were still getting robbed and killed and everything else on their way. Right. So what the Knights Templar would do is they would travel the countryside protecting Christians right. on their pilgrimage. And so kind of a noble idea yeah. of what they were there for. Uh, this became um, highly political because then it because it started being said, well, we don't have enough funds t- to protect Everybody, and so it became a very highly uh, financed organization. Yeah. Then it started getting really secretive, and so it was like they had secret meetings. They had all this weird stuff that was going on, and it bothered the powers that be. It bothered the um, it it bothered the kings that were some of them had actually indentured themselves. To, to yeah, it, it, they were in debt yeah. to the Knights Templar. They're borrowing money from them, right? So now they're angry at them. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, this becomes a huge political thing, right. which is really strange. It's a really weird development. Um, so uh, they lose Jerusalem, but the Knights Templar are still around, trying to do their best to to fight this. So right. what what they do in 1147? Let's crusade again. <laughs> we need some income. We'll go to war. It's kind of like what America does sometimes. All right. Anyway, just throw that in there. <laughs> so anyway, the Second Crusade happens, and it's the same thing. Let's go take back Jerusalem right. from the Muslims. And um, so same type of thing going on. They they secure the area. Um, but uh, in, while that's going on, there's another development in Christianity that is happening in Europe, and that's called scholasticism. Yeah. Which means uh, mainly the education of Christians had been in uh, the monasticism. Right. Monks. Monks. You had to, to teach. Yeah, you had to go to a, to monastery. a, to a monastery uh-huh. and that sort of thing. Well, now it was starting to become popular to create universities. Right. And actually, the modern university that we have here in America is a result of this, is derivative of the universities that were established in this time frame. The very first one was the University of Paris, and it was a, uh, a church university, but uh, soon to follow was Oxford, uh, Cambridge uh, these are all names that you're probably very familiar with. They all date way back into the Middle Ages. Right. 
So you had this Christianity. Uh, okay, the barbar the barbarism is basically gone from yeah. from England, and it's becoming an enlightened society. I say England, Europe. Yeah. So you you have this enlightened Christianity thing that is beginning to happen, and I think this is largely responsible for coming out of the Dark Ages, because these people began to educate themselves uh, very very thoroughly without, you know, going to monastery. Um, so in 1184, however, probably because of all the new thinking that was happening, yeah, there was some heretical thoughts in the minds of Catholicism. Right. Um, that were starting to float around. And uh, so they had to come up with an, a way of squashing all this new thinking. Yeah. <laughs> so. I like the way you're introducing this. This is great. <laughs> we must destroy their thinking. <laughs> we shall have an inquisition. <laughs> a little inquiry, as it were. Yes. Not a big deal. Yeah. You just come to the church. We'll ask you a few questions. Put your thumb in these screws. <laughs> oh. So, so the Inquisition, this, this, this begins a new thing mm-hmm. um, for Christians. Let's torture people to confess. Yeah, that's the best idea, so, isn't it? Right. The idea behind the Inquisition was uh, to get people to confess their wrongs, their sins, their heresies false teachings, whatever, um, and even to convert. Now, this time, we weren't quite there yet. Yeah. But but they're just trying to squash some teachings they don't like, and they managed to do so quite well. Yeah. (laughs) The Inquisition worked. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Which is a bad thing because... In an outward appearance, it worked, right? (laughs) Yes. I'll say whatever you want, just don't cut my head off. That's, you know, pretty much... (laughs) Right. It's like, what are you going to do with that nail? I don't want that there. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, so um, this this starts kind of a scary part of Christianity. Well, I say starts it. We kind of already started that when we started the Crusades. But um, so uh, by this time, we're going in and out and in and out of Jerusalem. The Knights Templar are still there. Uh, but these crusades just, they, they keep happening uh, because in 1187, we have to send another one. And this is the third crusade. Now, what makes the third crusade interesting is that, uh, have you ever heard of the guy Robin Hood? Yeah. Okay. Robin of Loxley. Robin of Loxley. Yeah. Robin Hood, the whole legend of Robin Hood is built around this third crusade. Right. Because Richard I was king of England at the time, and he was into this crusade stuff, man. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, yes, I'm going to go down there and Richard fight for the Holy Church. The Lionhearted was Richard it? the Lionheart, yeah. yes. And uh, so the king, he this is called the King's Crusade. A lot of people call it this because the king himself got on a horse and went down to take care of business. Um, didn't bode so well for him. Uh, <laughs> he ends up in jail at one point, uh, ar- not arrested by anybody there in Jerusalem, but, but arrested by Henry the Fourth, I believe. I had to look at my notes to see. Yeah. But he, he, by his own, right. who's trying to usurp authority and take over yeah. rights. 
Exactly. <laughs> so it's like, right. oh, the king's out on his horse. We'll play around. Yeah. No one will miss him. He's missing. <laughs> That's right. Everyone thinks he's missing in action. Yeah. So we have all this drama now happening in England at the same time of this third crusade. And man, this is not anywhere near the end of these crusades. From 12, in fact, the only notes I have in the 13th century, mm-hmm. the 1200s, is crusades. Yeah. That's it. It's it's over and over again. So if you, it's, <laughs> there are a total of nine cru- yeah. crusades that happen over a 200-year span. Now, can you imagine that? Nine it, holy wars. Yeah, and it's and it's all based on this idea of getting Jerusalem back. Back. And uh so but while we're in the 13th century, mm-hmm. aside from all of this battle, all the battles that are happening over in um these holy crusades that are happening, um we have some interesting Christian thinkers popping yes, up. Yes. And uh that's the light side of <clears throat> of this dark age. There is light yes. in the middle of the darkness. Um St. Francis My hero. of Assisi. Yes, St. Francis of Assisi. So uh, he was he came out he he came around and as a public figure around right around the century right. at about twelve hundred. Right. So um, he was basically a um, a rich uh, son of a rich uh, uh, merchant in Assisi. Um, he uh, actually went and fought. Uh, as a soldier for a CC for a time, um, and when he came back, he was just uh, convicted of uh, basically um, this rich, extravagant life. Mm-hmm. Uh, started wondering what's life for. Took a pilgrimage to Rome, and on that pilgrimage, he fell in with beggars, mm. and he learned the beggar lifestyle, and he and uh it became a ragamuffin he became a ragamuffin well basically <laughs> it connected him with the truth of Christ and he took Christ's words literally to the rich man basically mm-hmm. give up everything and come follow me so he took a vow of poverty right he took a vow of chastity ran around naked in the streets he ran around naked in the streets <laughs> and he wouldn't even he wouldn't beg so much as people would give to him mm-hmm. um, and he saw a vision in a church uh, in a rundown beat up church uh, of Jesus on the cross speaking <laughs> to him saying rebuild my church and what he took that to mean was literally rebuild this church right here mm. originally right he was just a literal person but then he uh, God meant it to re- rebuild right, right. The my structure, church the exactly. infrastructure exactly and so um by uh, 1219, uh, he's got this huge following of, they, they become friars is the name, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they've all taken vows of poverty. They're walking around. You, you would, by this time, you would notice them, oh, those are those beggars of St. Francis, right? right. <laughs> those are those beggar monks. They're not into the money and power like the rest of the Catholic world. These guys are into living poor and, uh, and loving people. Which is crazy. Yeah. You know, what? It's an amazing what? concept. Uh, <laughs> by 1219, St. Francis is like, all right, I've had enough of this stupid uh, uh, crusade crap. I'm going to go over to Egypt and I'm going to convert the Sultan. 
<laughs> and that'll end the Crusades, right? So he actually tries he tries to convert the Sultan uh, to in the conflict of the Crusades. Uh, he comes back and organizes the monastic order of his friars, the Franciscan order, mm-hmm. um, and then he steps away from the public eye, basically, because everybody's focusing on him. They start attributing the miracle of the stigmata to him. Right, I heard that. Um, which is really <laughs> interesting, and I'm not sure how true that is or not. Um, but uh, the point of that was, this guy is so Christ-like, mm. you know, that he could bear the, the marks of Christ himself. Yeah. Um, little known fact, he was the first person to institute the... Uh, uh, um, What's it called at Christmas? The nativity scene? He did oh, the, really? The first nativity scene ever. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so he was just an awesome, you know, Christian leader. A, a little bright, shining light out of this huge darkness. Dark area. That's right. So, Well, we, had, we also had the author Dante Alighieri. Dante? <laughs> Tell me about Dante. Dante's Inferno. <laughs> Dante. Dante was a writer and... Um, uh, He's most known for the Divine Comedy, yeah, which is uh, his take on heaven and hell, and um, traveling through it. And it basically is somewhat politically charged hmm. uh, because he was really opposed to some of the, of the. He was opposed to papacy. Well, he wasn't opposed necessarily to papacy, but he was opposed to the popes of his day. Right. Okay. And he actually, in his writings, puts several of the popes that he disagrees with in like the eighth level of hell or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, he's, he's using this writing to state his stance on where the church is in his mind. Yeah. And so, uh, anyway, it's a, it's a, a up, it's a, a read that has lasted. I mean, Dante's Inferno sure. and all this that that we're, we're familiar with his. In fact, if you if you think of the devil as a red guy with horns and a pointy little tail and a goatee, yep. you got that from the imagery of Dante's produced, Inferno. You know, right. in this book, um, the angels with wings yeah. and all that sort of thing. All this imagery that you, that that people have created in pop culture or whatever uh, about these mystical things. A lot of it comes from Dante. Right. So uh, then in 1270, we also had yes. Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. So do you have anything there on, on Mr. Aquinas? I'm, I'm looking it up. I forgot to pull him up. Another, another theologian yeah, uh, from right. this time that's probably uh, one of the greatest theologians. Um, it wrote tons of, 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 of books. What's the... And, uh... and, Theses. Yeah. In fact, it said it was said at one point that he he was known to have four people assistants with him, and he would dictate four books at one time. <laughs> <laughs> so he would have everybody writing writing his, his stuff down. And um, he he was a proponent of natural theology um, and modern philosophy. Uh, he was big into the natural law. He was kind of like a, a scientific uh, uh, guy. He was uh, he was a uh, of the order. Um, I think he was a he was a Dominican uh, friar, right? And well, he was um, 
he had some some interesting views about um, almost existential views mm-hmm. about uh, what it means to serve uh, a god, and uh, and and he had views of God as being like, for example, you couldn't separate nature from God. That's he had this whole view of that. To speak about nature is to speak about God because He is in control of everything. Right, and so He would say things like, "We don't serve gods; we serve, or we don't, we don't worship a god. We worship the eternal God." Like, right, it's really weird. It's hard to phrase, but but He's basically trying to say that um, that God is so powerful we can't even get our mind. Around, around, him. around him. That's right. So, and he was big. Again, he was big on on science, basically, mm-hmm. uh, and he was a proponent for pushing for science. So he's a you know. Well, remember this time too. Scientists were largely Christian people, right? Um, you know, I mean, we, we when we get to like Newton and Pascal and all these guys, oh, yeah. they were all th- th- those guys were all Christians, right? So, uh, so moving along into into the 14th century. <clears throat> We have King Philip of France. He was um, he was in debt to these Templars, <laughs> and he was like, you know what? I've had enough of these Templars. I'm tired of their secret society. I'm tired of not knowing what's going on behind their closed They're doors. They're so big in the britches. They're hiding out down there in Jerusalem, and and you know what? I'm going to make up some stuff. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to figure out. So he come, he charges them with all kinds of heretical things. And we don't know what's true or what's not because the Templars were so secretive. That, and this has actually bled into the origins of the Freemasonry and all kinds of stuff. But I don't want to get into, <laughs> into all that. But uh, so, you know, what does King Philip do <laughs> in order to get rid of these Templars? We should have another Inquisition. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so basically he tortures these, these knights Right. Into doing things like spitting on the cross and and committing uh, sexual acts and, and things like this. And then he makes them confess to it. Right. <laughs> so, so anyway, he gets them all like convicted of heresy right. and is able to, to get rid of them. Yeah. So this is the official death of the Knights Templar. <laughs> now, we don't know, you know... Oh, they existed. What these conspiracy they theories may the say. Masons. <laughs> the Illuminati, you know, or whatever. Yeah. So <laughs> but funny. but uh, from the history book standpoint, that's the end of right. the Knights Templar. They were like, it ain't worth it. <laughs> so. Um, oh, so much more. Yeah. So. Where um, are we at? Oh, wow. Let's see. Okay. 1388. I got to talk about this guy. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, 1377. He's a, he's extremely important. 1377. John Wycliffe. Wycliffe. Yeah. Okay. John Wycliffe is strangely enough not a well-known guy on our tongues. I mean, we don't. I mean, we. You say Thomas Aquinas. You say names like that, and it's like, oh yeah, uh, William Tyndale. But right. Wycliffe. It's like, we don't know much about Wycliffe, but Wycliffe was technically the first reformer. That's right. He, he, was, the, he was the guy. Who, Everybody else follows in his footsteps as far as the Reformation is. The, the cool thing about John Wycliffe was he was completely unapologetic while in his apologetics. That's right. <laughs> he was completely, he didn't have a problem saying anything in front of anybody. He was a big proponent 
of predestination, right. which was unheard of at that time. This is before John Calvin and the whole Calvinism stuff. So right. he was he was a big proponent of this. He despised the papacy and the whole structure of the church. He wrote against it. He spoke against it in public. All he, he was starting fires. Right. And and uh, the church was going enough, enough, enough. We, we're <laughs> we're going to put you out. And, yeah. And they actually shut up, dude. <laughs> wow. They had they had so many. Uh, they tried to press charges and get him excommunicated right. and all this stuff, but the people loved him. Right. And the people would revolt and say, no. Yeah. You, you can't, can't mess with Michael. You can't mess with John. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so uh, so he inspired uh, a lot of people right. to follow in his footsteps whenever he passes on. He, was, he actually is the first real translator of the Bible into English. Right. However... History doesn't really give us how much he was involved with it. It wasn't just him. There were other people involved. Um, but They translated directly from the Vulgate correct. to in the vac- uh, vernacular English. Right. So, so this, he didn't go back to the Greek or right. the original languages. He just simply took the Vulgate. He wrote it into Middle English. Right. And which I've got a, a copy of that translation, and it, again, is very hard to read because <laughs> of the language at the time. But uh, there was no printing presses, right? So every copy was hand handwritten, handwritten and mm-hmm. illuminated. Yeah. So beautiful manuscripts oh, if you yeah. ever see them. There, it's it's amazing. Priceless manuscripts. Yeah. So <laughs> Wycliffe it was just an amazing guy. Yeah. Uh, the church never could pin him. They never could get him. Uh, but later on, didn't they dig up his bones? Oh yeah, we'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> so, so, so he he dies of a stroke in 1384. <laughs> Four years later, his companions compile all his manuscripts and release the Wycliffe Bible. Right. And so, uh, if you find the, a Wycliffe translation, this is this is what where it came from. Um, so then we have um, something that begins to happen uh, as a result. There was a, uh, he had a friend by the name of John Huss. Yeah. And it's spelled Jan, but it's John. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so now he's a young man at this time, but we'll start to find out he is a, he is a, um, a bohemian and he <laughs> is, as bohemians are, Oh yeah, passionate. Yes, and, and uh, this this actually uh, comes out here in a little bit. We start to enter in what is called the Italian Renaissance. Right, fourteen hundred to th- to sixteen hundred is the Italian Renaissance. Now, yes. what is the Italian Renaissance all about? Bunch of painters get together. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in the Ninja Turtles. Ex- explosion. Yeah. <laughs> This is an explosion of art and culture right, exactly. in in Italy. In Italy. Uh, this is going to be your uh, Da Vinci, um, Michelangelo, all these guys. This is their time frame. Right. So we have this Italian Renaissance. So okay, you know, we've got all this university stuff. We've got scholasticism. Mm-hmm. We've got the Renaissance happening. Man, it's becoming high culture. That's right. We've gone from mud and bubonic plagues. Yeah. To grand cathedrals right. with beautiful paintings on them, right? Huge, yes. huge um, change and right. shift in in society, and um, so 
in uh, 1400, mm-hmm. we had this guy, John Huss, begins to write his stuff, okay? And it starts to take note. Well, John Huss was a passionate man following in the foots of, of Wycliffe, right. but he did not have the following Mm-mm. that Wycliffe had, and he didn't have the protection of that. That's right. And so as a result, 15 years later, the church is like, enough of this junk. Mm. We've heard, we thought we were through with it when Wycliffe died. Now you're bringing it back up. Right. So in 1415, they have the Council of Constance. And the whole point of this council was to declare him a heretic. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so guess what? Burn him. Burn him at the stake. Burn him at the stake. So John Huss, He's a witch. he gets burned at the stake <laughs> at, at this point. And that's not good enough. Wycliffe started all this, right? So, well, let's just dig old Wycliffe right. up. They dig Wycliffe up and they burn his bones. <laughs> Seriously. I love this, though. This is awesome. <laughs> you make the Catholic Church so mad, they dig your bones up and burn them at the stake. That's awesome. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> All the while, you know, who's getting the laugh laugh on that? <laughs> That's right. Look, like, they burning my bones. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. Oh, man, that's so messed up. But, you know, okay, here's the reason behind that. And once again, this goes back to this legalistic idea oh, thinking yeah. or what a physical physicality. Okay, the idea is in the resurrection, <laughs> the dead will rise. That's right. Well, what if the bones aren't there? Can't rise. That's right. There ain't nothing there. There ain't nothing to rise, right? No, no. there's not enough logic going on here to stop and think, oh, wait a second. God created us out of dust. We all turn to dust anyway. Exactly. These bones don't last forever. That's right. And um, so how does God handle the Christians that turn to dust? Just don't figure it out. Oh, yeah. so... But anyway, that aside... So they're going to burn Wycliffe's bones so he can't rise exactly. at the resurrection. Burn his bones to ash so he can't re- he can't resurrect. Yeah. Now, stop and think about... Just not forget the logic behind that. <laughs> stop and think about the audacity. <laughs> it's like, it ain't up to God whether or not this man rises. It's up to us. It's up to us. Yeah. Wow. The Catholic Church. Wow. Oh, my goodness. So, uh, yeah, the church is in a messed up place. <laughs> During this time frame. Um, okay, so then uh, 1439, the Council of Florence. Yes. Uh, the Council of Florence was, uh, let's get rid of this great schism. Okay, remember we talked about that? The first right. thing we talked about, the great divide between Eastern and Western Orthodox. And there, there was this idea, this noble idea, we're going to mend our differences. Yeah. We're going to get together, and, and they did. They got together and they and they were everybody was cool. Let's get back together. Let's right. unify. The people said, "Nah, <laughs> <laughs> we're different." <laughs> so it's like no matter what the council came out, the people said, "No, we're, right. we're not doing it." And it didn't even matter because in 1453 the Ottoman Empire comes through. Now this right. is another Turkish uh, group of of Muslims. Muslims uh-huh. They come through in 1453, and they sack Constantinople. Yeah. Okay, so that means no more That's Eastern right. Orthodox. The Eastern Orthodox goes underground right. for 400 years. Wow. So the Turks take over Constantinople, and it becomes? Oh, 
Istanbul, Constantinople, <laughs> now it's Istanbul. <laughs> Why did Constantinople get the works? Because I don't know something about That's the Turks. That's nobody's business but the Turks. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's so, <laughs> so good, So the baby. Turks take over Constantinople, <laughs> and the, the papacy there, all of their structure, everything, remains. They allow them to stay there, but it's like under shades of some weird Muslim yeah. stuff. So we don't really know what's happening behind the Muslim closed doors. Right. Uh, we just know that they allowed them to continue to exist. And it mm. wasn't until like 400 years later that they actually reformed and came up to be pretty much what we now know as the Eastern, as the Orthodox. Eastern Orthodox. But man, they've been, they've been quiet yeah. For for years. I mean, we're coming almost into the modern age before they came out of that. So you think Rome was happy about that? Probably. <laughs> the people the people probably were. At right. least the the Roman uh the 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 main yeah, the Catholic. Right because they weren't happy with this Council of Florence. Right. So, <laughs> so okay, so the final thing that we got before we end, uh we're pushing up to that 16th century, 1500s, there's going to be a lot happening in the 1500s. Oh, man. That's my favorite era. So I didn't want to get into that yet. So we're going to end here in 1480. Yeah. Never expect what happens in 1480. Another Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition. (laughs) Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's, it's a shame we're laughing about this. This is like, oh wow, this is a horrible, yeah. horrible thing. Thousands upon thousands die. We're cracking up. Okay, I'm sorry. In 1480, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain formed Great guys, aren't they? They formed another Inquisition. Yeah. And here's the reason. Man, there's a bunch of Jews around here. <laughs> what are these? All these Muslims coming into our country. We got to do something about this, right? <laughs> Got too many Jews and Muslims. So this Inquisition wasn't necessarily about, uh, although it did weed out heretics, because this is what they would do. Mm. If anyone stood up to what they were doing, you were a heretic, right? Right. So it didn't matter. So if you, the the they were forcing Jews and Muslims to convert to Christianity through yeah. torture. Right. If they did not, or if you weren't cool with that. You you must be in league with them. That's right. This is McCarthyism. Yeah, but going way back. I mean, oh, Mac- yeah. McCarthyism. It wasn't. That's right. It wasn't with McCarthy. new. Right. This <laughs> this goes way back to. So right. um, there was over a 350 year period. Uh, the Spanish Inquisition executed between three and four thousand people, Gosh. representing two percent of the people who were accused. So the other 98% all confessed or, yeah. you know, whatever. But uh, the Inquisition played a major role in the final expulsion of Islam from the kingdoms of Sicily and Spain. Yeah. So it worked. <laughs> <laughs> if you call it working. <laughs> if you call it good, but yeah. it did what they were, that, that's what they were going after. Okay, but to be on, this, on to be perfectly clear, the papacy decreed this inhumane and put a stop to it. Right. So they were cool with it up to a point. Right. <laughs> but Ferdinand and Isabella, you guys, you're going a little you're taking far. it to the next level. Right. Uh, and 
you know, we won't go into any details, but yeah. you can find on the internet and you can find all kinds of read boxes, book of martyrs. Yeah. Uh, it talks about some of this, uh, the torturing methods were excruciating, crazy yeah. stuff. Um, and so all, once again, somehow in the name of Christ. Yeah. So very dark time, but yes. we still have some lights. But we made it through, and in uh, mm. beginning in our next part, we'll start talking about reforming yeah. and how things really started to change. So, so. you know, just a little encouragement <clears throat> if you think that your times are dark now. Yeah. For 500 years, right there. Right. That were some of the worst times in history. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, we're not even close to Spanish Inquisition. That's now, right. So. Well, um, so anyway, got some great news for our next episode. You guys make sure and tune yeah. in. This is going to be a first for us. Yeah. We're going to be interviewing an author. Yes. Uh, we're going to be interviewing Brian Godawa. He is the author of uh, of a of actually a series of books uh, called The Chronicles of the Nephilim, uh, the first of which I'm reading right now called uh, Noah Primeval. And it is a cool read. It's fiction, um, but it is completely from biblical and extra-biblical sources that are all faithful to the biblical source. Right. and it's done in a very fast-paced, really energetic way. I'm really excited about it. I want to. I want. It's like I can't. I'm not a fast reader, and I, yeah. I want to like you know just consume this, soak, like, soak it up, just suck it all up. So I'm really excited about next week. We're going to be interviewing Brian about his series of books. Now awesome. we know the Noah movie. We've talked about the Noah movie. Right. Uh, he's had interviews with the Noah movie, and we had a short little conversation about. All that, and I said, well, you know, if it's just, if it's good with you, I'd rather not even really talk much about the Noah movie. Yeah. He was like, good, I want to talk about my work. <laughs> <laughs> so, amen. I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I don't want to retread all that, sure. all that Noah movie stuff. Let's. So we're going to talk about what maybe the Noah movie could have been. Right. Because if they made a movie out of, like, some of the stuff he's got in this book, man, it that would have been, been epic. Am- that yeah. would have been amazing. Wow. So, uh, so anyway, tune in next week for that, okay. and uh, that that'll be that'll be lots of fun, definitely. And uh, so, I got a little bit of listener feedback uh, cool. about our last episode that dealt with depression. Had my son Kevin here to uh, to talk about his stint with that, and uh, <clears throat> Josh writes us and he says. I've got to say to you, and Kevin's relationship is a beautiful picture to me of our relationship with the Father. Mm-hmm. I heard the podcast on depression, and I learned so much from y'all. But what's funny is what tugged on my heart was how you and Kevin spoke to each other. It's so good to see. I learned a lot from your podcast, too, though. Uh, Kevin actually made depression make more sense to me. Mm-hmm. So, uh, guys, let us know um, how this went. For you, I mean, uh, I'm real interested to to hear responses. Man, we had lots of listens. Yeah, that that episode, at least at, the, at this point, had pulled in about a hundred listens in a week, which is pretty big wow, for us. Wow, yeah. So, exactly. um, give us some feedback on that. And let us know uh, what you thought. Uh, call us and leave a voicemail nine seven two eight eight five seven two seven zero. Email us at theonots at the gctnetwork Visit us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Theonauts. Uh, tweet us <laughs> on Twitter at 
theonautical. Um, And there's many other ways that you can contact us. And please go on to iTunes and Stitcher and and give us stars, rate us, give us uh, some comments. That stuff will help us get uh, heard a little bit more and and get the Great Commission transmitted. (laughs) (laughs) Across the world. So that's it for this time. Thanks for being here, Jeremiah. Hey, thanks, David. And God bless you. We'll see you later. This has been the Theonauts Podcast. Call us with your questions or comments at 972-885-7270. That's 972-885-7270. We'd love to hear from you. You are tuned in to the GCT Network. This is your Great Commission. This is your Great Commission transmission. At GCTNetwork.com. This is your great-